Good morning, everyone. What a, an awesome privilege it is to stand before you, and I'm so grateful for the confidence of your pastor that he would invite me to come and spend this time with you and share a word, and I'm grateful that you are willing to hear me this morning, and I'm so grateful for the prayers because you know that unless the Holy Spirit is doing the work that he alone can do, my standing before you will be to no avail. And so I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful for my wife, my bride of 52 years, four months, and two days, uh, that uh, she so graciously goes with me when I am going to speak or going visiting, and so what a joy. It's been a wonderful journey uh, to be with this lovely lady sitting here. I'm so grateful for her that the Lord has placed her in my life. I want to share with you from Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, and you shall read down through verse 17 from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And it reads as follows, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the tenth day, I'm sorry, the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord. I'm really adding here. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thus ends the reading of the word. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have loved us with an unconditional love. And Lord, you chose us not because of who we are, but because of who you are. You chose us, O oh God, out of your own will and volition to set your love and affection upon us. You chose to send your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from the sins that we've committed against you. 
so that you would be free to forgive us of all of our sins without violating your own holiness. You've given us this awesome privilege of calling you our Father, and you call us your sons and daughters. And Lord, only a good God would do that. And we thank you and we praise you, God. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we assemble in this place today, we pray that your Spirit will speak to us, that your Spirit will guide our hearts and our minds, that your Spirit will illuminate our hearts, that we might not only read, but we will receive and understand your word and to take it deep down into our hearts. And by your Spirit, Lord, may we walk by your word, may we talk by your word, may we live by your word, and in all things, may we give you all praise, glory, and honor. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray, we thank you, and we praise you. Amen. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. What I've just read to you are words that were used as the introduction to one of the most profound documents that has ever existed in human history. It is known as the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America. And although the document it introduces is profound, it pales in comparison to what is set before us in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 3 through 17 of the passage that I just read contain the beginning words of a covenant between God and the people of Israel. It serves, in verse 1 and 2, in verse 2 specifically, we have what is considered to be a prologue to that covenant. Every covenant has at least two parties. The prologue provides a brief explanation as to how the parties came to be related. In ancient times, whenever a conquering king would conquer a people and he became their benefactor, he would set before them the terms under which they were to exist under his government. The people were under his protection. There were laws which they were to follow. In essence, a covenant would establish the means by which they were to be governed and the relationship between those parties. In Exodus 20, it is God himself speaking directly to the people of Israel. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the God who delivered you. I am your God. Before these Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel, God did some amazing things for them. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage. They were slaves, and God set them free. He not only set them free, he did so by inflicting ten plagues upon the Egyptian people to the point that when they decided to let them go, they were glad to let them go. Each plague was directed toward a particular deity in Egypt. 
God took the people out of the country where they were, had been held as slaves. He removed them from the place where they had become accustomed to the religious customs and the things going on of those people that held them captive. He demonstrated that the so-called gods of the land had no power. The Egyptians had religion without reality. They held as sacred that which had no substance. There could be no doubt in either the minds of the Egyptians or the people of Israel as to who caused those plagues. God demonstrated the miraculous nature of each plague in two very distinct ways. First of all, every plague was revealed beforehand and executed exactly the way God said it would be executed. Then God demonstrated his power to be strategic by showing a difference between the Egyptian people and the people of Israel. The plagues were over the whole land of Egypt except the territory occupied by the people of Israel. The people of Israel were not touched by the plagues. Then there was the journey through the Red Sea. God manifested his power in the parting of the Red Sea. The people of Israel walked through the sea on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army attempted to follow, they were drowned. They drowned in the very same sea in which they attempted to overtake the people of Israel. Even the Egyptian proclaimed, Yahweh is fighting for them. Yahweh is fighting for the people of Israel. And you and I have been delivered from bondage. In the writings of various New Testament uh, churches, or the writings to various New Testament churches, the Apostle Paul demonstrated the same principle of teaching the people and confirming them in the grace wherein they were saved. And we find this especially true in his letter to the saints at Ephesus. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he spoke to them about who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, Now that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, here is how you are to live. In other words, it was doctrine before duty. Come to understand who you are before you begin to try to think about what you are supposed to do in living unto the Lord. How important it is for we to keep that point in our, our minds because very often people feel as if uh, they need to clean themselves up. As a matter of fact, I was talking with a gentleman last evening and about the Lord Jesus Christ and I was asking him, are you set for eternity? Well, he began to talk about his pension. He began to talk about, you know, the money he has and his life insurance and all of that. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. What's going to happen when you leave here? Where are you going to spend eternity well, I'm trying to get to that point of being, and I'm saying, sir, stop trying. The Lord has done it all. You're trying to do what the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit only can do. You're trying to clean yourself up. Only he can clean you up. You have to come to the point of saying yes to Jesus and what he's done for you. And so many people are in bondage. One of the strongest things I discovered years ago is the privilege of comparing scripture with scripture. 
And may I say that much of what I've learned, yes, I read scripture, but unless the Holy Spirit illuminates my mind, I can read it over and over and over again and still will not get it. And so when I say discover, really I must say what's revealed to me. It is the Holy Spirit who opens up my mind to see and understand exactly what is being said to me. I want to invite you to come with me to Exodus 19, 3 through 6, where it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, why is that so important? It is so important that they understand the relationship that they now have with the God of the universe. And God has already demonstrated, look at what I have done for you. And so he says to, to, to Moses, tell the people, remember, consider what I have done for you. And you know, the Apostle Paul did the same thing in the New Testament. In, in one particular passage is in Romans chapter 12, many of us are familiar with, it says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. Well, what are the mercies of God? His justification. His sanctification. His bringing you into his family. All these things, these are the mercies of God. It says, I, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, not your unreasonable, but your reasonable service of worship. Consider what God has done for you. He's been good to you. Now it is reasonable. And this is what God is saying to Moses. Say to the people, I have a reasonable proposition for you. Verse 5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Well, notice he begins by saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. A reasonable prophet. God is such a reasonable God, isn't he? If there's anything that's unreasonable about our, our God is that he is so loving. He is so merciful. He is so gracious. There is no reason why God would love somebody like me except that that's just the way he is. There's no reason. And so he says, consider the reasonableness of what God is about to say. You were slaves, and I and I alone set you free. You were in a land where you were in bondage. I have brought you out. I have proven my superiority over any and all other so-called gods. I did this by demonstrating that the so-called gods of the Egyptians are nothing. Not only do I have power over nature, I have power over life itself. Your deliverance is because of my mercy and grace. Not because you were so worthy. Not only had God delivered them from the Egyptian bondage, he had also provided water out of a rock. He had given them quails in such abundance to eat that they gouged themselves on it. 
God had also provided manna from heaven. And, and, and when you read all through this, at the end of the, 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 the journey, the 40 years, he says, your feet did not swell all of these 40 years. Why? It's because the food that I gave you was so nutritious that the, the diseases that would normally affect your feet did not come upon you. I got a question for you. Is God reasonable? Is God reasonable? Yeah, ponder that for a little while. <laughs> and then he says, you shall, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of house of slavery. Then he said, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no God like me. You should not look to any other God. And as we examine the first four of these Ten Commandments, it is evident that they are all about worship. This speaks of our relationship to God. The last six of the commandments are about a life of deeds of service and speak of our relationship to our fellow man. Ultimately, the all ten are about worship because how you treat your fellow man is a reflection of your worship of your God. The first set begins with our thoughts and culminates with our service. The second set begins with our deeds toward our fellow man and ends with our thoughts toward our fellow man. Our thoughts are at both ends of the spectrum. God forbids our evil thoughts about himself and he forbids our evil thoughts concerning our fellow man. Proverbs 24, 23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus said in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, slander. These are the things which defile a man. Notice what Jesus is saying. The first thing is our thought life. There are many who believe that idol worship is all about bowing down before physical objects. Idol worship actually begins with the thoughts of our hearts. May I say to you that the most important thing about you is not your education. It is not the house in which you live or the car you drive or the wonderful children you have or the beautiful wife that you have. The most important thing about you is the way you think. Ultimately, it is the way you think about God. You know, I have asked a number of people, and some of these have been preachers. When you consider all of God's attributes, which, what is the number one attribute of God that underlies all other of his attributes? If you say love, you're close. But it's not it. The one attribute of God that underlies all of his other attributes is his holiness. Everything else ties into that. His holiness. It's not just love. This is why Jesus Christ had to come to die on the cross because otherwise God would not have been able to forgive our sins without violating our holiness, his own holiness. But because his justice has now been satisfied, he can now forgive us without violating his holiness. Do you get the picture? 
And so when we think of this, it is what we think about God. The essence of worship is neither the words of my mouth nor the actions of my hands. It is a sentiment of my heart. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13, where he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And we can read about this in so many passages. One of the passages that I will not read right now is that uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. What happened in that indictment that Paul hands down? He says, considering themselves to be wise, they actually became foolish. And their hearts were, were, were darkened. It began with the thought life. And everything about us begins with our thought life, and in particular, our thought life concerning God. You've heard these words, and, and these are not mine. Actually, the author is unknown. If, if you know the author, please share it with me after worship. Be careful of your thoughts. It says, be careful of your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words. Be careful of your words, for your words become your actions. Be careful of your actions, for your actions become your habits. Be careful of your habits, for your habits become your character. Be careful of your character, for your character becomes your destiny. Your thought life is extremely important. So at the outset, God presents the thoughts we should hold about him. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he taught the very first thing, the very first and foremost thing was Hallowed be your name. Then everything else follows in that. God is to be held in the highest esteem in everything concerning our lives. The Ten Commandments reveal to us the character of God. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We're to be imitators of God. The Ten Commandments reveal to us the depravity of our souls. Sin is defined on the basis of who God is. And so God is saying, there to be no other gods before me. R.C. Sproul, in his teaching, speaks of John Calvin as in saying, nothing that belongs to God shall be ascribed to any created thing or being. Adoration? It all belongs to God. Trust, it is all unto God. Invocation, it is all to God. Thanksgiving, we owe it all to God. We owe everything to God. Everything. Every, did I say everything? <laughs> everything we owe to God. Our very existence we owe to God. Very often when people ask me how am I doing and I return by saying I'm doing better than I deserve, I get all kinds of responses. Oh, it's not that bad. No, 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 no. It's that good. Well, surely you deserve. I said, no, 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 uh, no. I don't deserve any good thing from God. But I'm so grateful that he's so gracious and kind to bless me 
not according to what I deserve, but according to his own loving kindness. And the Bible teaches us that over and over and over again. And so everything belongs to God. Every beat of my heart, oh God, thanks. Every twinkle of light in my eyes, every sound that hits my eardrums, I owe it all to God. Everything belongs to him. So man's number one duty to God is not to do great things for God. No, don't miss that. I know that many people are married to their Christian devotion. And that's good. But we need to understand that, that for, first and foremost is our love to God. So our Christian devotion or whatever it is should be because of our love for God. Jesus never asked us to be devoted to a cause. Now, some people may say I'm preaching heresy now. No, no, no. He asked us to be devoted to him. And in him, whatever he assigns us to do, then we do that. But our devotion is not to the cause. Our devotion is to him. And so... When we look at the Ten Commandments, we're seeing God, we're seeing his holiness, we're seeing his character. The commandments themselves that what we're looking at here is what God is saying. When we do these things, we are really reflecting his character. We've already talked about the fact that there are two parts to the laws. In verses 3 through 11, we see how we're to worship God. And here are four things. Nor the gods. Worship God and God alone. Secondly, there to be no graven images. We're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Number three, you shall not profane the name of God, hallowing the name of God. Number four, remembering the Sabbath for rest and reflection to broaden our capacity for worship. Did you not know that we're still supposed to have a Sabbath? It doesn't have to be Saturday. But what's the purpose? I'm not talking about legalistic matters here. This is not legalism. Please understand me. But taking time to rest and reflect upon God allows you to consider the reality that everything does not move by you. When you go into that grave, guess what? The house that you leave, somebody else is going to live in it. The car that you're driving, somebody, unless you, it's an accident, somebody's going, I don't mean to be, that, that, that didn't come out good at all. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you for being kind to me. I, I appreciate that. But if you leave a car, somebody else is going to drive it. And so we need to be mindful of these things. We need to take rest because that allows us to, to reflect upon the fact that the world does not begin and end with me. That God's really got this. And so we reflect on the reality that all that I'm able to accomplish, I am only able to accomplish it because God gives me the ability to do it. And so we take time to reflect. Our bodies also need rest. Our bodies need rest. 
You know, I've discovered that times when I'm, sometimes I'm trying to, to read, I'm trying to uh, read a passage uh, in the Bible or reading a book, and sometimes I'm doing when I'm really tired and, and I find myself reading two or three lines and I go back, I didn't get a thing that I just read. I go back and read it again and I still didn't get it. I go back and get it again because I'm, I'm spending more energy trying to stay awake that I'm grasping, you know, that, you know, by, by trying to continue to read. And so just sometimes just a 15-minute nap makes the difference. But God wants us to take time to rest and reflect upon him. Now, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Jews had turned this into a legalistic matter so that, no, you'd better not work. You better not. No, 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 no. They missed the whole point of it. And so even today, and I, I have to confess to you, well, I don't have to, but I'm going to do it anyway, because you've already shown yourself to be so kind that I don't always take the rest that I should take. But I've just recently told my wife I'm going to begin to fight for that to make sure that I take that rest because after all, I am not God. I need my body to rest and relax. There are certain things that go on in your body when you rest that are for your good. And we won't get into that. Next point. <coughs> Practice of morals. How we see and treat our neighbor is a matter of morality in verses 12 through 17, starting with the familial honor, the honor that we pay to our children. You know, someone was visiting the United States from England, and, and, and they remarked, says, my, I am so amazed about how American parents obey their children. <laughs> you walk down the grocery store aisle, and Johnny picks up a box of cereal that is not on the budget, and he puts it in the basket, and Mommy says, now, Johnny, put that back. Now, Johnny, put that back. Now, Johnny, put that back. Now, Johnny, and I want to say, may I speak with your son a little bit? <laughs> may I have a conference with your little son, Johnny, for a few minutes? Yes, I have restraint. <laughs> Familiar honor. Our society has kicked it to the curb. And it's so sad. It is so sad. God commands it. Many parents do not realize that they are in charge. God has put you are in charge. And one of the major problems is that they don't know that they're in charge. And because they don't know that they're in charge, the children don't know it. Well, when you know that you are in charge, the children will know it also. And you do not have to be cruel. You do not have to abuse your children. This is not talking child abuse. This is talking simply honoring father and mother. We're to have the highest regard for life. In other words, there shall not be no not be murder. Devotion to purity. And I know that it is all over our communication devices, television, etc. But we are to be pure. God wants people to be pure. And in so doing, to respect your neighbor. We respect another's property. 
There's also supposed to be deference for one another's reputation. In other words, it's not merely a matter of not bearing false witness, but you're supposed to be protecting of your neighbor's reputation. When somebody is putting your neighbor down and you know that that is not right, then you need to turn a deaf ear, you need to step away, you need to say, if you've got a problem with your neighbor, you need to talk to your neighbor about that and not about, not to me. And there are churches that are torn apart because of gossip. Someone has said that you are no less like the devil when you gossip. <laughs> and you're no more like Jesus when you forgive You know, it's not always a matter of that. You know, we can say things, and we can say things that are just, the way we say them make a difference. Take the phrase, I did not say he stole the money. I did not say he stole the money when you apply it to somebody and say it. I did not say he stole the money. Well, you were implying that he stole it. I did not say he stole the money. Were you implying that he took it? I did not say he stole the money. Were you implying that he stole something? All of why I'm saying, I did not say. And at the same time, you're trashing the person's reputation. We have to be so careful. Words do matter. When I was a kid, it was told, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt. So untrue. Words matter. Words matter. We are to be cultivating a God-honoring thought life. And that's guarding the heart. Creature worship is at the root of idolatry. It happens when we strip God of his glory with respect to any one of his attributes. Any one of his attributes. Now, there are a couple of erroneous thoughts that we find here. You've heard the saying, well, but that's Old Testament. It's not relevant to Christians. You know, the ceremony, ceremonial law was indeed only a shadow of the good things to come. And they were fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that God's moral law has never been repealed. God's moral law has never been repealed. There were people that were doing something that was just totally outrageous. And uh, a certain preacher, I think it was R.C. Sproul, who challenged them on it. And they simply said, well, well, that's Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us today. His response was this. What has changed within the character of God that says that something he abhorred in the Old Testament is now a thing of great delight? What has changed within the character of God wherein something that he abhorred in the Old Testament has now become a thing of great delight to him? The word of God says God does not change. His character does not change. If lying 
in the Old Testament was worthy of hellfire, then creative selling in the New Testament can also be lying. So I have to be very, very careful because we're thinking about the character of God. Because we live in a fallen world, any country without the element of moral restraint to protect one citizen from another is a country filled with misery. Proverbs says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The world and even some church people hold the erroneous thought that you can't legislate morality. But may I say to you that practically every law on the books in the United States deals with somebody's morality. Somebody's idea of what is moral or immoral. There are laws against murder. Few people have a problem with that. There are laws against theft. Few people have a problem with that except the thieves. There are laws against false accusations. There are laws against yelling fire when there is no fire. There are laws against child abuse. There are laws against rape. There are laws regarding how you drive your motor vehicle. Somebody says it's immoral if the speed limit is 50 and you're driving 70. And if the police officer catches you, you're going to pay. There are laws against lying under oath, but there are laws that should be laws against lying, period. All of these are laws to govern morals with punishments for the violations of the same. And the list goes on and on and on and on. So when somebody tells you that you cannot legislate morality, you look them steadfastly in the face. Are you kidding me? And begin to tell them certain things that they consider to be immoral and where there are laws against it. The Ten Commandments teach that there is no area of our lives that's to be lived apart from God. I often think about what God said about King David as being a man after his own heart. Then I think about some of the reasons God would say such things. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Not every now and then, but day and night. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. In John 14.21. I grew up with the thought that any work outside of church ministry is secular and church work is spiritual. With God, there is no such thing as a separation between church work or spiritual and secular. When you go to do your job, you are to do it not as unto the boss who pays your paycheck, but you are to do it as unto the Lord. The scriptures teach us that. And so that applies to every aspect of our lives. The commandment against stealing includes the time you take away from your employer if you're on a clock by taking breaks that are longer than you ought to take. That's stealing. Society doesn't see it that way. Oh, you just take a little bit of time, but that's really stealing. I remember a story about a man who had been called to the, his son's school because his son had been caught stealing pencils. And he went, and when he found out what that was about, he had a fit. 
my son doesn't have to steal because I bring him all the pencils he needs for my job. Some years ago, I read an article by an individual whose name I fail to remember. The article has resonated in my mind ever since that, and it began by saying, very few people ever take the time to read such masterpieces as Edward Gibbons' Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But to read that particular work is worthwhile for the picture contained therein of our country today. Those who have thought that one of the greatest empires ever built by man fell because the invasion of the invasion of the viral people from the north, the Huns, the Goths, and the Vandals, who came sweeping down on Rome and laid waste that great empire are mistaken, according to Gibbons. No, proclaims Gibbons, that did not cause the fall of the Roman Empire. That was merely a circumstance of the fall. The reason he enumerates for the fall were these, the rapid increase in divorce, undermining the sanctity and dignity of the home, higher and higher taxes to pay for bread and circuses to gain the support of the masses for totalitarian government, the mad desire for pleasure, pleasure that was indecent, piling weapons upon weapons when the real enemy were within the decay of religious faith. So the religion became a hollow form. These are the enemies which destroyed the Roman Empire, and every one of them is a reality in our own country today because we've gotten away from God. Allow me to end with these couple of thoughts here. In our modern society, we wish to regulate everything by specifically mentioning a specific law. And under this, there's the expectation that the law is so exhaustive that, that anything that is worthy to be in the law is in the law. And if it's not written down, then if anybody does these things, even though they're considered to be immoral, they escape. These are called loopholes, if you will. And so by this approach, all actions are permitted that are not expressly forbidden or regulated. Thus, it is not uncommon that criminals in modern Western society evade uh, prosecution because of a technicality or a loophole in the law. Their undesirable actions are not exactly prohibited or regulated by a written law, so they cannot be convicted even though an objective observer may be convinced that what they did surely deserves punishment. Under God's government, there are no such such loopholes. When God says love your neighbor, God means just that. God means that you do not do any, anything at all that will injure either your neighbor's personal property or your neighbor's reputation. That you do not do anything whatsoever. I remember years ago that people of color in the South would lose their property because the law says that the person who held the deed in his hand 
was the owner of the property. And I remember specifically one particular incident where one man whose skin color is not like mine uh, asked the gentleman, may I see your deed? And he went and he got it and he showed him his deed and he took off. And because the law said that because the deed was in his hands, he was now the owner of the property. So that man of color lost his property. And I'm told that that was repeated many times in the South. But guess what? God saw that. God saw that. And um, Now, could that man be, be forgiven for having done that? Yes, he could. And this is, this is why I say God's grace is so amazing. His grace is so amazing. But society at that time, those who were in charge, if we would, those who held the power, said that was okay. But God's word never agrees with such actions. And so anything that you think that the law does not say anything against, see the law now says that it's okay to kill your unborn child. And no, I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking, I'm talking righteousness. I'm talking righteousness. God says, thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit murder. And so even though the laws of the land says it's okay to kill your unborn child, God's word says that's unacceptable to him. And so it's a matter of considering the character of God. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, we must understand that they reflect the character of God. And the one attribute of God that underlies all of his other attributes is holiness. And it's only to the degree that we understand the holiness of God that God's grace becomes amazing to us. It is when we understand that because of his holiness we deserve to be in hellfire, then we can truly not just sing amazing grace, but we can rejoice because his grace is truly amazing to us. Thank you for giving me a hearing today. Father, thank you for your word. Be glorified. May Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Smith, for sharing the Holy Word of God with us this morning. We look forward to next week when we will continue talking about the greatest commandment. And we uh, hope that everyone can come back next week. Will you stand, please?